It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back. Great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Wednesday midweek edition of Rintoul and Sermon featuring Jamie Dodd this week? Get that text message thumb or thumbs warmed up. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Start firing away. we got a good show lined up for you today. We've got news that's going to be going on throughout the course of the show, Jamie. It's that cycle in sports where ah, it doesn't seem like much is happening and then something decides yeah. to happen. Yeah, and some potentially pretty big and interesting news that's going to go down later today. We are waiting for official announcement, of course, from the BC Lions. They've called a press conference. They say they're going to be announcing a new era for the team. So, of course, speculation immediately turns to the question of ownership. We know they've been trying to find local ownership for quite some time. There has been reporting, I believe, from Dave Naylor saying, yep, that's what it's going to be. We don't know the details yet, so we can't confirm anything. But in a couple hours, we will find out. And it's going to be really interesting to see exactly exactly how that shakes down it's not just the bc lions it's the canadian football league as well it'll happen during the course of our program today and while we don't know all of the details there's some speculation out there and that's speculation right now i'm not going to put it on the air because it just might be wrong i want to see something a little more concrete that speculation right now jamie is tied to local ownership and that's where we're going to start this program today we're going to start with this question. It's a very simple one, and we want your responses on this. When it comes to your sports teams, does local ownership matter to you as a fan? Is it really important to you? Is it somewhat important, or do you not care at all? And, Jamie, as we look across sports that matter to this people in this community or matter across this country, there are a lot of different ownership structures, and there are a lot of different ownership structures that can work. Everybody's a little different in this regard as a fan, what you want from your ownership. Yeah, and it's the question of specifically local ownership is so fascinating because as a fan, I know for me, more than anything, I just want committed ownership, right? Ownership that you know cares about the team, cares about winning. And yeah, sometimes that can get you into a sticky situation too, right? If they almost care too much and they're too engaged on a day-to-day -day basis. But that's the, the bedrock principle that you want is someone who's committed. And I do... Sounds like a little technical difficulty from Mr. Dodd that. there. Jamie, we're going to get you to reconnect because we're having a little in and out with the connectivity of your microphone here today. We will get your full comments here after you reconnect with a different link. As everybody knows, we are working remotely. Want your opinion on this as well. How much does local ownership of your teams matter to you as a sports fan? And you can apply this to any one. I do think it's different when it applies to different levels of sports. And with all due respect to those who are not named the Canucks in this city, they are on a different level as far as passion and support goes and when it comes to the bc lions i think right now with where they're at i think it matters more than with other teams i'm first going to give you a sampling of some of the responses i've gotten on twitter and i threw this poll out there less than an hour ago a lot of response so far and it's fairly balanced there are almost 38 percent of you who've responded on social media saying local ownership matters a lot 39 percent are saying somewhat and then there are just over 23 percent saying that doesn't matter to me, not at all. I'm going to give you a sampling of some of the responses before I get to the BC Lions specifically. 
This comes from Chris. Somewhat, says Chris. It definitely would be nice, but at the same time, you want someone who's going to be a good owner, too. I'd much prefer a good owner who is hands-off in the sports department, but is more than willing to sign the checks. And this person is not a huge fan of the ownership of the of the Vancouver Canucks right now. Blackout on Twitter says, Owner doesn't matter too much, but the GM better know the local scene. This, again, replies to the Canucks. Food at Rogers Arena is questionable, says this texter. It could be more, so much more. That's the Vancouver scene. Jamie, I believe we've got you reconnected. I'd like you to finish your thought when it comes to how much local ownership matters. And as you said, you want a committed owner, but what does that mean to you? Does that simply mean bankrolling? What does it mean? Well, that's a huge part of it, but also committed to the city. And I, I think my views on this are you know, they're going to inevitably be shaped by the experience with the Grizzlies, right? Which, of course, did not have local ownership at the end and were moved out of town pretty unceremoniously, right, by Michael Heisley. And we immediately have a text coming in saying, yeah, it matters, Michael Heisley, enough said. That's from Lack in the 650-650 text message inbox. And it's not – you can have non-local ownership that is committed to a market and committed to helping a team – be a winner, but I do think you're always going to have that extra degree of confidence if it is a local owner, right? And that doesn't mean any local owner is preferable to any non-local owner because there's a ton of other factors that go into it, but I understand why it gives fans an extra sense of security when it comes to the team. It gives security in that sense because let's apply it to the Vancouver Canucks. Prior to the Aquilini's owning, owning the team, it was owned by Orca Bay. We all know what that looked like. Stan McCammon was the front man for John McCaw, and the complaint at the time was absentee owner, not in the local community, doesn't have a feel for the market. No one would accuse the current ownership group of the Vancouver Canucks of that, and if there is a criticism of the current ownership, it's too hands-on more than yeah. anything else. You look at the Toronto Maple Leafs and anything under the MLSE umbrella. Well, they're owned by a corporation. And so it's about having deep pockets there and hiring the right people, but there's no personal connection. It's a board that's running the entire operation. There are lots of local teams that work as far as local ownership goes as well. And when it comes to the BC Lions right now, Jamie, and there are varying degrees of interest. There are some in this community that say, ah, I have no time for it, never will, don't even want to listen to it. There are others who are passionate fans. There are others who say, well, I'm kind of on the fence. You might be able to get me interested if X, Y, and Z happen. Here's why it should matter right now for the BC Lions and why I believe, my gut tells me, it'll end up being a local ownership group here today. The Lions are at a point in their organization where – they not only do they need the financial backing, Jamie, but they need people who have local connections, business connections yeah. to go to their neighbors, to go to their their fellow business people and say, I need a favor from you right now. Here's what I need you to do for me. I need you to get a suite or I need you to get a few people out to the game. I think we've got something here and I think we need to rally as a community and can you do me a solid on this one? And that's the one thing when you have ownership from outside the market that you generally don't have. This isn't a commentary on the entire span of David Braley owning the team. Rest in peace, David Braley. But David Braley, toward the end, he's not in the community. He doesn't have those same local connections that a local ownership group would have. And with where the Lions are, as far as interest goes, as far as getting crowds out, I'm happy to hear that it's going to be a sellout or close to a sellout tomorrow night. It's not asking too much to get 12,500 out 
if those people are not concerned about, you know, getting infected with COVID and rising cases. But they need someone to ask favors. They need someone to go to local groups. They need some boots on the ground. And I think that more than we see anything directly, certainly on the field or even affecting the average fan with this ownership, the new ownership situation with the BC Lions, we'll see the change or we'll hear about the change anyways, exactly in what you're talking about, right, is in those ties with local businesses, with potential local partnerships with local businesses, right? And the hope is that if you can get some extra funding from those, if you can partner in the right way to promote the BC Lions in interesting ways, in different ways that haven't been done in the past, then you can then translate that business success into increased fan interest, right? Into an increased commitment to putting the best product possible on the field, to make to making going to a game at BC Place the best possible experience. It's not the kind of thing that's going to happen overnight, but I think you're absolutely right, Scotty, that those connections, especially for a league like the CFL and a team like the BC Lions, those local connections are so important, and that's going to be the most important thing about bringing in a new local owner, right, is their ability to forge those strong ties within the community already. All right, we've got more confirmation, so we'll get you the local owner's name. And I don't know if this is one of many local owners or if it is simply single ownership of the BC Lions. Patrick Johnson of the province had it first. He had a source, and he said it sounds like Farhan Lalji has confirmed it. Amar Doman, owner of the Futura, Futura Corporation, is the new owner of the BC Lions, 30-year history in the lumber and building industry as well. So that's... The new owner of the BC Lions, at least one of them right now. His uncle, the late Herb Doman, was the founder of Western Forest Products, which was a very prominent, has been a very prominent industry in this province as well. So there's confirmation out there that it is going to be BC-based ownership for the BC Lions. As a fan, does that matter to you? Does it matter at all? And this doesn't just have to be for the BC Lions. This can expand to the Whitecaps, to the Canadians, to the Vancouver Canucks. And I do think with the Lions, the Whitecaps, and the Canadians specifically, I think local ownership matters more. That's not a shot at the Aquilinis owning the team. That's absolutely fine, Jamie. I just think it matters more when you have what I would call a second-tier yep. second property in this city. You know how much I love the CFL. I'm not trying to knock it down. You know how much that's been a part of my life. I love soccer. I love baseball. But we all know what the bread and butter is in Vancouver, whether you want that to change or not. Well, and just to, you know, you're right. And it's not about denigrating either MLS or the CFL. But if you look at, at the NHL level, we're talking about ties between businesses and corporate sponsorships. And at the NHL level, a lot of those are happening at a national level, right? You're negotiating national TV rights and and you're trying to make sponsor you're making sponsorship deals with giant corporations like our parent company Rogers right and at ML MLS and the CFL level you know it's more local it's local businesses that are more important for you to connect with so yes I do think it matters more for teams like that to have local ownership but the the MLS and Whitecaps example is a really interesting one right because it's great to have local ownership but that's not a guarantee that everything's going to be fine and we've seen nope. how how much the Whitecaps have struggled, even despite having local ownership. So I think it's the kind of thing to kind of go back to my earlier comments. It matters, but it's far from the only thing that matters. You can have local ownership and still feel like your ownership situation leaves a lot to be desired, as in the case of the Whitecaps. 
but the Whitecaps had that honeymoon phase. And part of that has to do with yep. an expansion franchise and something you've never had before. But there will be, I think, at least some sort of honeymoon phase for the BC Lions. Yes, it's a property that's been here for a very long time. But anytime you throw something new into the equation, there's new interest generated. Does that translate into seats? Does that translate into sales right away? I don't know. We'll get more information as it goes down in a couple of hours out of the BC Lions facility, the CFL involved, and there will be a new ownership announcement, which has been waited on for quite some time for this club. 650-650, Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. You can get in any time throughout the course of the show. We're asking about local ownership, whether it matters or not. Something that does seem to matter over the course of the last 24 hours, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised, Jamie, and yes, we touched on it yesterday, ads on NHL jerseys. I'm surprised at how much attention it's getting a day later after this report broke yesterday morning. Yeah, and I guess I, I don't know if I would say surprised because I remember when we did this whole thing with ads on helmets as well, but it does seem yeah, a little out of whack for what we're actually talking about here, right? Which is, you know, a three by three or three by three and a half ad on the shoulders of jerseys. But whenever the topic comes up, yeah, people get a little heated about it. Hands up if you're old enough to remember rink boards with no ads on them. I am just slightly. You're probably not, Jamie. But eventually people got used to them. Eventually people just accepted them for what they were. And likely it goes that way with patches on sweaters as well. I do wonder this. I do wonder if there is more pressure not to put an ad on an original six sweater. Do you view the Montreal Canadian sweater differently than the Vancouver Canucks? I do think, though, you'll see those teams at least have maybe a little bit more care in what they choose to put on the sweater than a team like the Coyotes or the Predators or the Stars, a team without that kind of lengthy history and that, you know, the the nostalgia around the jersey. So I think you'll see them do it because, you know, they're, they're not going to leave that money on the table either. They're all hurting in a similar fashion. But I do think they're going to have to think carefully about exactly what they put on. All teams are going to have to think carefully, but those original six teams, Montreal especially, I think you're going to see them exercise a little bit extra care there. We all understand why it's happening, and most logical people say, okay, you've had this pandemic hit, you've had all of these financial shortfalls you're going to have to claw your way back this makes sense might not have wanted to go down this road but there are revenue streams that you've got to pursue that perhaps in the past you would have been reticent to explore i think most people understand that whether they have disdain for this particular revenue stream or not jamie but one of our colleagues raised an interesting point and i'm sure he's not the only one but i heard ryan pinder talking about this today and i think it's a fair question to be asking If the NHL is hurting as much as we've been led to believe it's hurting over the last year and a half, which is completely understandable given how much it's a gate-driven league, why are we not talking about relocation? Why are we not talking about a second team in the GTA? It's a fascinating question, and you have to think if there was ever a situation where it was going to happen, it would be in these circumstances, right? Where the NHL is casting about for any way to juice revenues in the short term. Now, maybe the response from people in the NHL would be, yeah, we understand, but it's only a short-term solution. But I I don't necessarily agree with that. And that might be the argument from the Maple Leafs, right? Like, hey, don't don't do this just because we're desperate in the short term, even though it's going to harm us in the medium and the long term. But 
you're right. If they if they are truly going down this road of man, we need to do anything we can to generate some extra money to try to get this salary cap going back up to try to grow the pie again. Yeah, you have to at least talk about it. You have to have that conversation about are there teams that are in bad locations that we can move to much more profitable locations? And the second team, the GTA, is going to be the obvious example, but I'm sure there's plenty of other scenarios where you can imagine moving a team, for example, from Arizona to a better location where it would make more money for the league. Yep, there's the geography problem that you have to solve, and the league is probably fairly happy with its geography right now with Seattle coming into the league and the way that they've reconfigured the divisions. The math is better. It's all balanced. Eight teams, four divisions, 16 of 32. They like that aspect of it. But if I'm a player, if I'm part of the Players Association, and I'm saying we've got to deal with a relatively flat cap over the next little while, can we look at a couple of these sinkholes? that are bleeding money year after year that we're pouring resources into. And we better at least explore the possibility of going somewhere else. And, hey, MLSC is going to have something to say about that. They're probably not super on board with moving another team in in a market that they have control over right now, that they've got the monopoly in. But if you're the National Hockey League and you're the players in particular, you better be raising that question. Yeah, you have to at least talk about it. Again, because you can't. You can't have it both ways and be like, hey, we're in unprecedented times. We have to do all these special things to try to get more money. And, you know, the players are we've, we've had the flat cap. We've agreed to all these unprecedented things, but we're going to leave this off the table. Oh, we, we couldn't possibly talk about relocation. No, it, it's it's just something that would help the finances of the league. Right. And I understand, you know, Gary Bettman has been so reluctant to go down that road, but these are very special times these are unique times and sometimes you got to think about even extreme solutions like this houston and quebec says one texter yep those would be options as well and arizona to houston has been speculated in the past quebec city getting a team back there's an arena sitting there would love to have a tenant like the national hockey league back in town and we all thought when they started building that arena well they must know something they must think they're getting a team back but it hasn't happened as of yet those questions have to be asked. And while you've got this expansion coming in and you're loving that, as you look towards those future years, it's a fair question to ask, will the time ever be better than it is right now? Will it be better financially to do it than right now? Because you can make such a good business argument right now compared to other years. Well, that's the thing. There'll never be more incentive to do it, right? And that, you know, as you say, the the stumbling block is always going to be MLSE and the ownership of the Toronto Maple Leafs, if we're talking specifically about a team in the GTA. I think if we're talking about something like relocating from Arizona to Houston, the stumbling block is probably more Gary Bettman doesn't want that on his resume. But in both instances, whether you're talking about the GTA, whether you're talking about another market, the reasons not to do it they are less persuasive now than they ever have been because the potential rewards of doing it would mean so much more to the league and the players right now a couple of texts coming in on the sale of the bc lions bob and nanaimo sports teams have spent a couple of decades pricing families out of the market for tickets and now we're surprised no one under 40 cares about them the lions will die unless whoever takes over makes a long-term plan to provide an affordable to provide affordable family entertainment well quite frankly the Lions are affordable family entertainment right now. The Whitecaps, the Canadians, that's affordable family entertainment. If you haven't checked prices in the last couple of years, I understand why you're under that perception. There was a time, I would suggest, 
seven to eight years ago, Jamie, maybe even a little bit earlier, or maybe six years ago as well, where the BC Lions, they were in their heyday. They won a Grey Cup at home in 2011. They were really good 2012-2013. And gouging is the wrong word, but they pumped up their prices. They went, hey, we got a premium product here, and they got to a breaking point where they weren't winning as much as people expected them to, and the product wasn't as good as people expected it to be, and those prices didn't come down for far too long. That is a story we have seen time and time again across sports. Team's not good. We're still going to leave the prices where they're at. It takes a lot to have a sports team decrease its prices, but the Lions have done that in recent years. Well, and I do think, you know, to the texter's point, that perception still exists. I still talk to people in my age bracket, friends, who perceive the Lions as significantly more expensive than, for example, the Whitecaps, right? And yeah, it wouldn't really make sense for me to take my family because ticket prices are expensive. So I do think that was kind of penny wise, pound foolish at the time for the Lions. I understand you've got this team that's winning a lot of games. You want to take advantage of it. But yeah, as the texter just illustrated, and, and I've seen in my day-to-day life too, that that understanding or that perception is still out there, that the Lions are maybe more expensive than they actually are. Rager texts in, a positive about having a very prominent construction company as part of the ownership will be the hundreds, if not thousands, of connections they will have with other companies and contractors in the province. It will further your point about asking for favors and filling up seats in BC Place. That's why the time seems right now, and maybe a couple of years ago would have been even better, but we can't go back in time. I do think that's a big part of this, and I do think why it matters for this team in this moment. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Just fine. Again, it's it's similar to what we're talking about with the NHL, right? Every sports team is looking for whatever it can do to maximize revenue. And if there are going to be avenues, you know, not right away, maybe it starts, as you say, and as Rager says, with calling in some favors. But if you can start to build those strong partnerships with other local businesses, with more local businesses, than the team has done already. That's a path in the future to, you know, engaging with the community and hopefully growing your revenues a little bit. Johnny, be good on the topic of advertising on boards compared to advertising on jerseys. Wondering how I'm making the comparison. I'm making the comparison and you're going to get used to it. There was a hubbub. I can remember back in the day. What is this? What are they doing? It's going to... It's going to compromise my viewing. I understand your point. He says people buy jerseys, not rink parts. Putting advertising on jerseys for the broadcast, that's fine by me. But if you put on the jersey you're selling to fans, no thanks. Personally, I won't buy another jersey if that's the case. I bought five jerseys last year along with a lot of other merch. Would teams be willing to lose customers like me? My question to you, Johnny, is does the Adidas or Reebok or Nike swoosh on the jersey you purchase bother you whatsoever? At one time, it wasn't there. Now it is, yet you buy the jerseys. I think people get used to it, James. Yeah, I do see a distinction, and I understand the argument that you're saying it wasn't there, then it's there. It's a corporate logo as well. I think because people are so used to buying, you know, Nike shorts with the swoosh on it, Adidas uh, sneakers, whatever it is, we're so used to having those on our apparel that it, it doesn't seem as strange when you buy a jersey with it on whereas if it's you know a telecom company or whatever an airline a big retail store whatever the case may be that feels a little different so i understand where the texture is coming from and i'll be honest like in soccer i have been reluctant to buy jerseys in the past because the massive corporate logos are so prominent it won't be like that in hockey but i do think there's a segment of the population that certainly initially if the jerseys are only available with the corporate logos on them will be less likely to spend money on them yeah it might depend how well the team's doing as well and what the jersey yep. overall looks like as much as it does with the corporate sponsor i think there's that initial 
there's that initial pushback, Jamie. And again, I tell you this all the time, vote with your wallet. I'm not a big jersey purchaser to begin with. It's just never been a big thing for me, so this doesn't bother me as much. I just see it as a natural progression as to where sports is going. Stewie texting in, where would you draw the line when they start putting ads on the fans? Well, Stewie, I'd ask you this. What kind of sponsorship dollars would you like for your fandom? <laughs> because you probably have a price <laughs> at some point. At some point, you would probably take that money. We'll continue to have this conversation and many more. It's our weekly visit with Tim McAuliffe coming up next. What happened to it? Where did it go? I'm exactly with him on this. And I will tell you what we're talking about next on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Good interaction this morning. Keep it coming. 650-650. That is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd. I think you're like me in this regard, and I've said this before, but I am a sucker. I am a sucker for long-form sports documentaries. Long-form docs in general I like, but sports, yeah, you've got my attention, and I consumed one last night. Malice at the Palace. How about you? Yeah, I actually checked it out last night as well, Scotty, and it was uh, it was pretty good. I mean, the thing is, such such a, so much of making a documentary is choosing the right subject, and the malice of the palace is an incredibly fascinating subject and story. So it's a pretty easy sell for me on that one. Yeah, and there are some that are not great. Not every single sports doc is great, and there are some that leave you wanting more. I really liked this one for a few reasons, and we can delve into that a little further. I'm not going to go spoiler on you, but there are some general things we can talk about. I think a lot of our fans will want to watch that. Maybe you don't know much about it. I saw a texter send us in something yesterday saying, and we hadn't even talked about it yesterday, but saying, hey, I just watched Malice of the Palace on Netflix. I didn't know anything about that. And boy, it gave me a whole new perspective. I do think this does that. What you remember about the Malice at the Palace, you'll probably look at it a little bit differently after you hear from some of the principals. Jermaine O'Neal, Ron Artest now, Meta World Peace. Steven Jackson was prominent in it. Ben Wallace yep. is in there from the Detroit Pistons side of things as well. I think hearing from them gives you a different angle on it, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's just fascinating to, even if you remember the details very well, it's always interesting to hear exactly the thoughts kind of going through their head minute by minute, really, when it was happening. And this is how I was reacting in this moment. This is what I saw out of the corner of my eye. You know, this is what I felt in the immediate aftermath of the incident. There's a ton of great insight. And you're right. They got them to be, you know, very forthright and very open about everything that happened that night. Well, and here's the other part of it that I think is important, and I think it's easy to forget, because you remember the incident, you remember perhaps seeing it on television, your reaction at the time, and you might remember a number of the details, but you might not remember the context of it leading in. And I think they did a really good job in this documentary, which, again, we can get into a little bit more later in the program. They did a really good job of setting the stage for everything that went down that night in Detroit. Yes, and for people who forgot, you know, those two teams had played in the Eastern Conference Finals the year before, of course, the Pistons winning and then going on to beat the Lakers to win the championship. And then, you know, the Pacers, they went out and they trade for Steven Jackson and they felt like they were going to be the favorites to win the championship or at least to come out of the East that year. Certainly everyone anticipated it being a battle between the Pistons and the Pacers again that season. And I believe this was their first meeting of that new season, first meeting since the Eastern Conference Finals. And just imagine, you know, the hockey context, right? If the Canucks and Flames had been in the Western Conference Finals the year before and both teams were looked at as powerhouses going into the next season, that first meeting is going to have a ton of intensity behind it. That's exactly what the context was that night in Detroit. 
And just in case you didn't think it was from a bygone era, the score in that game six clincher for Detroit, 69-65. Yep, yeah. that was the final score. And that's not the oh, only oh. thing that has gone away, that style of basketball and those types of scores, as we will get into with our next guest who joins us weekly here, Tim McAuliffe, host of Tim and Friends on Sportsnet Television and the Fan 590. Tim, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Gentlemen, scholars, others, I am well. How are we doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. And you and I are simpatico on a lot of different things, and apparently something in traffic bothers you as much as it bothers me. Because I saw your tweet yesterday. I could not be in more agreement. Tim, what has happened to the courtesy wave in traffic when merging? Uh, We have all become these little bubble people who operate only in our own ecosystem because everything that we have in life is catered to us, and we have forgotten about our fellow human beings, Scott. Jamie, I believe this to be true, and I believe that we need to get back to an age where we understand that there are other human beings that help our existence, and who better than I to point this out in traffic, not in the global pandemic or anything like that, like vaccines. I'm not making any sort of political statement like that. I'm just saying if you let a person in in traffic, And I'm not talking about a regular old merge on a highway where you're supposed to allow the person in front of you to move in. I'm talking about there is a a traffic lane that's cut off. Something has transpired in front of you where you're in kind of a sort of thick traffic area. If you allow someone to go in front of you, you should at least get a wave, some sort of flashing of the four ways or the, uh, the caution signals uh i know old school uh truck drivers will tap on brakes and or put those indicators on to say thank you very much there has to be some sort of acknowledgement of thank you or we have devolved into lord of the fly scott and jamie yeah i'm exactly with you i love the impassioned speech that you just gave right now i'm so committed to this that i will even do it in instances where it is a regular merge. And sometimes I will say to my wife, hey, do you mind rolling down your window and waving at the person to make sure that they saw? Like, I am very committed to this. In fact, Tim, I will go a step further because we know there are offenses that can occur in traffic that are going to make your blood boil and make you have that reaction going, what are you doing? If somebody commits one of those offenses but then sticks his or her hand out to wave and say, my bad, my bad, all of a sudden I say, okay, you recognize that you were the problem there. I accept your apology. Immediate, immediate acknowledge and empathy from not only Scott Rintoul, but Tim McCallum. As soon as I, if someone uh, aggrieves me in any way, shape, or form in, um, in traffic, but gives me the old my bad, guess what? We're good. I, I no longer need anything else from you. There will be absolutely no road rage from me. I, as soon as the acknowledgement comes out, I've screwed up. I'm good with you, my friend. We can go on our merry way. Not only can we go on our merry ways, I have more respect for you because we all make mistakes. And to err is human, Scotty. And in those cars, we all do that. If there's a simple wave, even a, uh, an old school doffing of the cap as if we were 1940s baseball players, I'm taking any of that and we're good to go. We're in agreement. Tim McAuliffe joining us here. Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd. He is the host of Tim and Friends. We both consume. Hold on. Are we burying the fact that you gave me a homework assignment for this uh, this hit? 
See, you're reading my mind. This is exactly where I'm going. Jamie and I both <laughs> consumed Malice at the Palace last night. I texted you about it to see if you'd seen it. You said Homework. no, but this is how dedicated you are. You watched it this morning. What did you think? Uh, it was wonderful. It was and listen, there were several people that said you got to watch this before uh, you reached out to me, and you were like the the straw that broke the camel's back. I and the greatest part of this is that like I should have been front row for this documentary because I don't know if you know this, but um, that game was aired on the Score Television Network, and immediately following that game, I came up on the air with. Sid Sixero and Glenn Grunwald, who was doing his first or second piece of TV work uh, after being general manager of the Toronto Raptors. That quickly. And what was the reaction at the time? And how how has your perspective changed on it now, Tim, when you watch the documentary? Like, there were a couple things that st- stuck out to me. Yeah, there were a bunch of things that stuck out to me. Um, the one thing, and I was trying to think back as I was watching this, like as I saw Bob Costas uh, throw out the thug word mm-hmm. um, after it, and all these broadcasters that I look up to, Keith Olbermann uh, among them, like using language that I like that I found, you know, that that coded language that we all kind of now recognize as simply being out of date and tinged with racism. Like, and I'm, I, I have, I have absolutely no problem saying that. Like I, I have, you know, just some white guys talking here. I have no problem saying that I can't believe how tinged in racism, the response to all that was. And I think that because we in Canada had celebrated Mike Milbury going into the stands and beating a man with his own shoe. <laughs> I think we had a different outlook on it. And I, and maybe I'm wrong here, but like, do you even know, I had to look this up. Do you even know how many games Mike Milbury got for going into the stands and beating <laughs> a man with his own shoe? Like two, something like that. Zero. I don't know. Six games. You got six, six games for wow. it. I believe. Um, and I just like, to me, it was like, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this, same for Mike Milbury. And I think in the U.S., and, and I know Jermaine O'Neal brought this up in the documentary, which I thought was great. He, he, like hockey players beating the snot out of each other all the time. I think in the U.S., um, there's this, you know, insular kind of our sports, our thing, um, tinged to everything. And, you know, I only heard the word hooliganism once. Like, and hooliganism is immediately what I thought of when I saw the incident the first time. It was, this is something we see in Europe every once in a while. But in Canada, we'll watch Europe. Like, a lot of Americans won't even watch hockey, never mind European sports. And to this, to, in this incident, I think that they thought that this was all brand new and something that's only happened in hockey, forgetting completely about the story that almost every uh, hockey-watching Canadian knows, and that's Mike Milbury and a couple other guys climbed the glass and, and went after people uh, to the point where Milbury became a legend for beating a man with his own shoe. 
Well, and Tim, I totally agree with you about your point. You know, one of the most shocking things looking back, even having lived through it at the time, was just how how racialized the the conversation around it was, and specifically the constant use of the word thug and, you know, painting almost every player in the NBA as a thug. It, it was really shocking. And the yeah. other thing that I thought was interesting is applying it to today and just thinking, you know, as a member of the media, okay, how do we how do we be better than that in, in similar or, or other interesting situations? And I thought the revelations that Ron Artest was, you know, undergoing treatment for various mental health issues at the time and how that mm-hmm. treatment and how those issues played into it, I thought that was very interesting. And, you know, they're very different people, but we're, we're also seeing what's playing out with Naomi Osaka right now. And I thought that was a big takeaway well, for me is just before you jump to conclusions and jump in with both feet with your hottest take, just take a second to think, is there is it possible there's more going on behind the scenes here that we're not privy to right yeah i had a i had a conversation about simone biles and one of the things that bugged me the most about the reaction to simone biles was well like power through it and i thought in my head like that reaction is so gut like there is absolutely no thought process to maybe simone biles could be one of the greatest athletes of all time and had gone through it, and had powered through it. And when I watched our test speak now somewhat eloquently about what he went through, um, I think that that would be dealt with a lot differently now than it would have been. And I also thought about how many other athletes could you apply that to, perhaps who never even made it to whatever sport that they played, that were uber talented but couldn't deal with all of the things that came along with it and i think i think the 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 beauty of what i hope we all get from naomi osaka is that um there is some sort of paradox in all of this in in what we ask of the athletes and you know that there can be two things that are true at the same time and and i thought naomi uh dealing with the reporter in cincinnati um and actually trying to give some thoughtful answers to what people thought uh, could be conceived as bullying from the reporter, I thought like this, this, this playing out the way it did, and, and I thought it was ridiculous in the end, but the way it played out, I thought maybe we can learn something from all this where we understand a little bit more what the athlete goes through. And I thought that, the malice in the palace and Jamie, your point about what Ron Artest was going through. Like if it happened now, it would be dealt with differently. And like even going off to do the, you know, the album and all that, like every, it was just ridiculed. And what it was, was a mental break, right? Like, and if, if we saw that now, how much different that would be reacted to than it was at the time. It's, It's just, you know, Perspective is very, very, I, I, it's a sentence that I've uttered on this show before. It's a sentence that I utter a lot in life. Perspective is expensive. And that documentary gave uh, a lot of different people a lot of different perspectives on something that they probably already had a preconceived notion on. And that's a doc at its best. And just to pick up on the Naomi Osaka things and what happened in the press conference this week, I I find that storyline so fascinating because on the one hand, you know, she's saying, 
look, these press conferences don't work for me. I, I don't feel comfortable in them for all these reasons. And that's very understandable. And I think even as members of the media, we can get why those press conferences are awkward and maybe why we should be rethinking them. But that was yeah. also probably one of the most compelling press conferences of the year because she's doing exactly what you're saying. She's thinking thoughtfully about the question. She's trying to give a really thoughtful, right. interesting answer. And I just wonder, you know, you're someone you interview high profile athletes all the time. Has the conversation around Naomi Osaka made you rethink how you approach talking to athletes sometimes? Yeah, I, de I definitely think that. Like, I think I'm an interviewer that's always had a little bit of empathy. I try and put myself in like one of the things that I do going into every interview and my process takes a lot longer than most people because of it is I'll think of the answers that they're going to give to my questions. And I try and put myself in their shoes. And, and where does this get either me, the interviewee, or the uh, the viewer, listener, whatever it may be. And I've always tried to do that because um, as a failed athlete, <laughs> I always imagined myself answering those questions as opposed to asking those questions. And here I am on the other side asking those questions. But listen, we, Jamie, Scott, we've all been in or listened to a news conference where you're like, what a douchebag question. And when you're the athlete sitting there, after a while, you wonder, especially in this day and age where you see so much from fans via social media, you wonder if people are out to try and get you. Or And I've never want like, sometimes I'll ask a question and I'm like, I don't mean for this to be a gotcha question. And I'll, I'll say that to the interviewee because I, but, but here's my question. And it's because I, I want to give them the opportunity to kind of think their way out of what could be a tough question. But there's this fine line for me of between like the real media outside of sports. And I know there's a lot of people in sports who believe they're real media and I have no problem with that. There's accountability, but there's also like give and take. And uh, the timing on that requires a lot of self-awareness from athletes and uh, the interviewer and or management or whatever you phrase it as. But I, I think that there's a lot of give and take and there's time for accountability. And I don't think that the people watching all the time understand that, um, that it can be tough to walk that line for both athlete and interviewer. And I think you get the most out of your um, – you know, your guest, if um, you know when the time is and they know when the time is, and we've all been in a spot where one of the two don't. And I think it's one of the great fallacies in sport, and it ties back into the malice at the palace in a way as well, Tim, because one of the themes that comes out of it is the commentary around it was, well, these guys make all this money, they have to act differently than the average human. And we look at athletes in press conferences, and one of the comments we get back when we talk about, say, Naomi Osaka or someone who's having trouble dealing with the media is, hey, suck it up, you make millions of dollars. I hope we're getting closer to bridging the gap with most people realizing these are people too. They are great athletes. They are incredible at what they do. But at the end of the day, they're just like us. Yeah, without a doubt. And that, that the things that would haunt you, like the fact that this still sits 
with Jermaine O'Neal is kind of sort of unbelievable. And, and one of the things that uh, he said that really hit me was like, no one cared about my appeal. Like we do this all the time in media and uh, as media grows and, and has different tentacles like social media, we never go back and relitigate anything. Like we rarely, like there is a headline and then as it's been for hundreds of, well, maybe not hundreds of years, for decades, the correction to the headline is always way smaller than the headline. And if you're in the middle of that bleep storm, that really sucks. Um, and I've seen it time and time again now that I've been around the business for a long time where, you know, we go in, guns ablaze, and everyone's there. Everyone's saying blank, blank, and blank. And then when it comes out the other side, there are very few who are willing to admit that they were wrong. And, you know, that paradox where, um, you know, you can still be a good broadcaster and have made a mistake along the way, or you can still be a great athlete and made a mistake along the way. Like Ron Artest saying he was a coward in that documentary to me was, you know, as big an admission. And I had missed the, you know, post-game um with NBA TV when he won the championship with the Lakers and basically went on national TV and said, I was a coward for leaving the Indiana Pacers like that, that takes a big man. And I don't know how many people look back at meta world peace and say, wow, he, he really grew in his career, but that's the truth there. And I, that's, that's the part for me, Scott, that, that rings the truest is that we have these big bleep storms when things happen. And then, when the truth comes out, it's just, you know, a footnote in the story as opposed to something that should have been, hey, look at Jermaine O'Neal. Did we do him wrong? And I think the answer after watching that is, yeah, we did him wrong. Yes, I agree with you 100% on that. This is a quick right turn, but I want your opinion on this before we get to the end of the segment because there's big news coming sure. down in Vancouver today. BC Lions, it had been rumored and speculated on for quite some time. They are going to have a new owner after today. Local ownership, how much does it matter in this league? Uh, everyone should demand, and I know it's not always possible, but everyone should demand a local ownership for their pro sports franchise. It's the only way to understand the market. It's the only way to have some sort of accountability for ownership in a market. And I know that that can be difficult, but all you need to do is look at uh, the failed Super League in Europe. And what happened was everyone was just looking at dollar signs. It was an investment by the ownership. And I think that we all can understand that, yes, we want people to make money uh, while owning a team, but there has to be some sort of accountability beyond just um, dollars and cents because as fans, uh, we invest that type of energy uh, good or bad, going back to the malice of the palace, but good or bad, we, we invest that kind of energy into our teams. And I think that local ownership is remarkably huge. And it's just understanding the market and understanding the marketplace and knowing what to do uh, to try and service that marketplace. And that's not just always wins and losses. It goes beyond that. It's grassroots. It's It's building um, a relationship with the community that you're in. And to me, that's when sports are at its best. 
you're the former voice of the Hamilton Tie Cats. How much did things change there when Bob Young purchased Bob that? Bob Young, yeah, one eight, like just it was a complete one eighty. And listen, Bob Young is um, above and has gone above and beyond for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Uh, I haven't seen the books. I can't imagine that Bob Young has made a ton of money off of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. But the feeling in the city uh, from when Bob Young took over and said that he cared about this franchise, that it meant something to him and his family, the city of Hamilton bought in. And I mean, they literally bought in, not just uh, with their tickets, but with the the rebuilding of Iverwin Stadium uh, through and through. And it is one of the model franchises in the league right now. And that sense of community. And I don't, I don't know if that exists in big cities as much anymore, like Vancouver or, say, Toronto. Um, but it, it sure as hell means something in Hamilton. It means something in Regina and Saskatchewan. The province as a whole means something in Winnipeg. Um, and hopefully it'll mean something in Vancouver, too. Yeah, I think a lot of people here would agree with that sentiment. Do you get the day off because of the Jays game? Yes, actually. I am uh, I'm thinking of taking the kids bowling. Nice. That's a good or a bad idea. Ten pin, five pin. I think there's I think there's two I mean ten pin's way more fun. Five pin is just a joke, but when you're nine and eleven, I think five pin's the call. Yeah. Yeah, I agree yeah, with that. I know it's Canadian. I know it's Canadian, but I'm sorry. Like, you want to demolish pins when you go bowling. So give me that big rock as opposed to the little friend, Fred Flintstone ball. I will expect you to text me scores later. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Be well. You as well. That is Tim McAuliffe joining us here. Lots of great talking points there, Jamie. We could have gone on about yep. the dehumanizing of athletes. I literally have that written down in my notes to talk about for the Malison Palace. It was one of the strongest things that came through to me. One of the strongest things that came through to me in that piece on the Malice and the Palace. And it's something we can talk about throughout the course of the show today. There's a lot going on in the world of sports. There's also something that made me feel old. I'm not sure if we'll get to it next. That almost never happens in my life, but it did. And I'll tell you what it is <laughs> on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Yeah, it works. I'll give you a little fuel. On this Wednesday morning, if New Rock is your jam, stay plugged in with the New Rock playlist on Apple Music. It's always being updated with the best new bands, New Rock, including this song. And if you and you can add tracks right to your library for offline listening. Listen to New Rock playlist on Apple Music. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. Jamie, I don't know if you noticed, we got a lot of feedback on the courtesy wave. And I knew we would because this has bothered me and probably bothered a lot of people for a very long time. How hard is it to wave when somebody lets you merge in traffic when your lane ends or you find yourself in a bit of a pickle and you go, oh, man, I didn't realize I had to get all the way over there to turn. I thought I had another block to get there. Somebody lets you in. You've got to wave, and we have a lot of people chiming in on this. Yeah, it, 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 I completely agree with Tim. I completely agree with you in those specific situations. And I'll admit, I'm more on Tim's side of things where, you know, the standard merge, okay, that's just what we're all doing, right? We're all doing that. We all know that. We don't need to provide a wave in that instance. So I'm with Tim on that side. But when it is a little bit unexpected, oh, you know, normally this lane is free. Ah, but there's construction that I didn't see. Now I got to get in. I look like a bit of a jerk. You got to give the wave in that situation. It's just, it's just what we do as human beings for each other. 
especially if you know what you're doing, and you all know this. You've done it before. You might not make it on the regular, but you're short on time. You know the lane's going to end. You see some people merging at the 200 meter until the lane end mark, and you say, well, I'm going to take full advantage of this because I'm in a bit of a hurry and we're in a bit of traffic here. You know what you're doing at the time. Everybody else knows what you're doing as well. You do it anyway. You better be waving, man. Yes. Yes, you have to be waving, especially in that case. Now, I will make an argument, and it's difficult because it's these are, we're talking about situations where it changes, right? You know, you take the Lionsgate Bridge all the time, Scotty. So everyone usually who's going on the Lionsgate Bridge knows how it works. They knows how the, they know how the merge mm-hmm. works, and it goes smoothly. In these unique situations, I do feel like everyone should be going as far as they can until they yes. merge, and that would cut down on some of this awkwardness. But I also understand, you know, that doesn't happen and people aren't sure exactly what the deal is. And you can get into some of these weird situations. But I, I, I think the overall social policy would be go as far as you can and then merge. This one comes in, the courtesy wave. Yes, drives me crazy. Where has it gone? Why has it gone away? Couldn't agree more. Plus, what about pedestrians who don't hustle just a bit when you stop to let them cross the street? I am a pedestrian who will do that hustle. There are some who are not capable of that hustle. you got to cut those people a break, Jamie. What? It's not so much the lack of hustle with some people. It's when it's the saunter. And you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Completely yep. able-bodied person, often younger. I'm just going to take my time here. Even though well, you stopped for the, me and other cars didn't, yeah. I'm going to take my time. Or the, um, you know, at a at a traffic light, right, where you've got the pedestrian crossing and first it's the it's the, the little man that says, okay, you can go. And then it's the flashing hand and it's counting down with the numbers to show how much time you have left. The people that start the cross with, you know, four seconds left of the flashing hand and don't hustle – don't give a little jog to get across the street when you're trying to turn right at that intersection or whatever it is. Come on, man. You know you're breaking the rules. That's fine. I get it. You know, you're in a hurry, whatever. But put a little extra hustle in to get on the other side. Yeah, I'm with you on that one as well. Good comments coming in. I'm not surprised on that. I am still one of those obvious merge situations that will throw the hand up and wave. And you know why I do it, Jamie? Even though I, I understand what you and Tim are saying about you don't need to do it there. We're all merging. It's expected. I do it to let the people know, hey, we're all on the same page. We're doing the same thing. You went about this the right way. It's to reinforce the process more than anything else. Yeah, that's fair. And I think, I guess I have a similar thing. You know, if you're, for example, if you're in a lane that can only turn left or can that can only turn right, some people won't put their blinkers on in that situation. And I guess the thought process is, well, you know, I'm in this lane. Everyone knows I'm turning left. But I think you should still put your blinker on just to make sure, like, hey, listen, we're all on the same page here. I just want to announce I know what I'm doing. You guys can have confidence that I know what I'm doing. And as you say, it's kind of reinforcing the process. Even if it's a little above and beyond, you still go ahead and throw your blinker on in that situation. It's Scott Rentoul. It's Jamie Dye. Plenty of sports to get into. There is going to be a significant announcement involving the BC Lions in a little over an hour's time. There will be local ownership involved for the first time in a long time, and let's hope that me- that means very good things for the BC Lions. Amar Doman, he's the owner of Futura Corporation, 30-year history in the lumber and building industry. He is the new owner of the BC Lions, yet to hear if there are any other partners involved, but we're talking about local ownership. It's one of the topics that we've been hitting on here today. I also wanted to get into this, Jamie, because this is going to apply to the BC Lions in future weeks. We touched on it late in the program yesterday, but you're seeing more and more stories come out about this. 
the measures that organizations are taking with regards to vaccinations for their event, is it going to be mandatory? What about masking policy? Winnipeg Jets, they jumped in front of this NHL-wise. They got in front of it last week and said, yep, you got to be double vaccinated to come to our games. MLSE did something similar yesterday, and it was for everybody who was going to be employed there. And, yeah, they've got a policy in place. I saw a story out of Seattle last night by Jeff Baker who said, the Kraken have yet to make an announcement, but likely they are headed this direction as well. And a lot of it, Jamie, has to do with health, but a lot of it has to do with those franchises, specifically ones that operate at indoor venues like the Vancouver Canucks, not wanting to go down the road of reduced capacity, which is what we're seeing with the Lions and the Whitecaps right now. Well, that's the thing. Ultimately, it's it's a business decision, right? How can we get the most paying customers in the stands, game in, game out what is going to make the relevant government authorities the, the health authorities what's going to make them okay with that and i think the answer probably in most cases is going to be hey if you have a vaccination requirement that's something we can live with these are business driven decisions first and foremost agree with that wholeheartedly and i'm interested to see what happens here in bc because of the way that we've gone about it during the course of the pandemic and i'm interested to see if the vancouver canucks because you know they're in conversation right now with the government and with health officials, are yep. they going to have what we see in what what the Vegas Raiders, for example, are going to do? They're going to offer vaccinations on site for those who are not vaccinated. Will we see something like that at sporting events in Vancouver? Or have we been progressive enough as a population in this province that we've gotten far enough in front of it with our percentages that that won't be necessary? Yeah, it does feel like it's a little different situation here because the percentage of adults and people eligible for the vaccine who have been vaccinated is a lot higher than in some of those jurisdictions uh, in the United States, for example. But you never know. I mean, and maybe it's the little extra boost that, you know, the government wants to say, okay, we can allow you to do this capacity if you also help us get some more people vaccinated, right? That could be part of the solution as well. Yep. And I'm interested to see where people are at with it, too. Like, are people going to, particularly in in BC, are people going to watch what happens elsewhere and say, I want a little bit of evidence first. I want to see what these group events are at, because most of us haven't been to one yet. Jamie, I certainly speak from the experience of, I haven't been to an indoor venue with a whole lot of people yet. I've been to a restaurant, but given the parameters we've been operating here under here in BC, that has plexiglass up, that has separation it's going to be a lot different at sporting events. Well, and especially if we if if the Canucks, for example, are operating at something close to full capacity, right? You're going to feel a little more crowded than you do at a restaurant. And then there's just the sheer volume of people we're talking about. Even if it's two-thirds capacity, the volume at a Canucks game is so much greater than anything you'd see at a restaurant. So I think it is natural that people, you know, you might be fine going to a restaurant, going to a movie theater if it has, you know, 50 or whatever people in it and they're spaced out. It's a big jump from that to going to something with 10, 12, 15,000 people at an indoor event where, you know, you're cheering and you're yelling and you're talking to your friends a lot, right? All of these things that might increase the chance for, for the spread of the virus. So in that context, I think it also makes sense like, hey, we're trying to convince people that it's safe to come and enjoy our product. This is something that's going to do that is assuring everyone that if you come, you're with you're surrounded by people who have taken the precaution of getting vaccinated.
Someone pointed out very correctly, unsigned text. Are they not doing a clinic this week near the Lions game and giving people free tickets for the future? Yes, they are doing that, in fact. And from what I have been reading over the last 24 hours, that Lions game looks to be sold out or near sold out for tomorrow night. 12,500 is the capacity. It's a 7 o'clock kickoff. And if you want to go get yourself vaccinated, if you don't have your first shot or you need your second shot, they are doing a pop-up clinic. And if you go participate in that, they will give you a ticket to a free – they will give you a free ticket to a future Lions game that you can attend. So already one local club showing that incentive. Yeah, not and not surprising at all. Again, you know, we're at that stage where every every little bit, every little incentive counts, right? For people who might be on the fence, who might be thinking about it one way – or another sometimes all all it takes is a little nudge and 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 you add up all those little nudges it can it can make a big difference province-wide it's Rintoul. it's dodd we got this text in from eric and dawson creek i've been driving all morning listening to your show i've had multiple courtesy ways back and forth just seems to make everybody who's involved have a better day i'm on the same page with you guys also i was pulled over when i sent this i will never text and drive again Oh, he said, I will never text and drive. Sorry, he didn't say again. I thought he got pulled over by a cop. He said, I pulled over to the side when I sent this. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate you doing that, Matt. Matt, thank you for being road safe, Eric. Yeah, texting on, looking at your phone while you're driving is bad, bad news, people. Do not, do not do it. We love, we love the engagement. We love the texts, but take a page out of Eric and Dawson's Creek book and go ahead and pull over if you're going to, if you're going to shoot us a text. It's Rintoul and Dodd. Let's get to what they're saying. Time for what we're saying. We get you some quotes from around the sporting world. Dave Dickinson yesterday. Dave Dickinson today in Calgary. Why are you talking Stampeders? Well, I'll tell you why. Because there's a local product who might start for the Calgary Stampeders. He is Michael O'Connor, though he is not born in BC. He played his university football at UBC for the T-Birds. Won a national championship as the quarterback there. And if he starts on Friday, Jamie. I saw Dave Naylor's report yesterday. This will be the first time. This surprised me. This will be the first time in CFL history that two teams have Canadians start at quarterback in the same season. That was a surprising statistic to me. That's a very surprising statistic for me as well, you know, just given the history of the CFL. But that's that's quite the uh, quite the achievement league-wide this early in the season, especially. So the Lions had the first. It was Nathan Rourke. He got forced into action in week one when Michael Riley was unable to go at the very last moment. So here you go, Nathan, Nathan Rourke. Welcome to professional football. You're starting your first game. This would be much more planned. Dave Dickinson, he was non-committal on who his starter would be, and he kind of joked, well, I know everybody else has their mind made up. O'Connor has the inside track to start. I personally hope he starts. I want to see how he does. I hope he does well. Bo Levi Mitchell and Michael O'Connor held their press conference together yesterday, their media availability. And here's what the now injured starter of the Calgary Stampeders, Bo Levi Mitchell, had to say. His scouting report on Michael O'Connor. Mike reminds me of like a young Ricky Ray. You know, he's he's tall in the pocket. He's calm. Um, he's not going to be a hoorah guy. Um, you know, when he throws a big pass, he's not going to be he's not going to get his head down when he throws a bad pass. You know, I think he's he's calm. He has that, that demeanor about himself. Um, throws a beautiful ball. He's got a strong arm, and uh, you know, probably is a little bit more mobile than you would expect from a bigger guy. So I think uh, to me, he understands the playbook very well. Um, you know, when I spoke about these guys in training camp, I think they, they've all got different things about them. Um, but I think Mike is, uh, you know, he's going to stand, stand tall in that pocket, take hits when he needs to, um, and, you know, do what a big quarterback should do is you've got the vision over the line, got the ability to see a lot of things. So he'll move the ball around and spread it out to the receivers and, and do a good job of leading the offense. 
Brandon Bridge got the start a few years ago. He's a Canadian, and it was a big deal at the time because he was the first, and I want to say it was 2017, maybe it was 2018. He was the first, Jamie, to get a start since Julio Caravada with the BC Lions back in the 90s. That's how long it had been. And while it's a little bit more common now, this has the potential to be an ongoing story because Bo Levi Mitchell with that fracture in his fibula, I believe, is going to be out for a few weeks. Yeah, this is not a one-off start for Michael O'Connor, right? He's going to have the chance to get at least two or three games under his belt as the starter and potentially do something impressive. And, you know, he's probably not going to create a quarterback controversy there in Calgary, given what Bo Levi Mitchell does uh, on a regular basis on the field. But he still has a chance to further his career, right? And maybe puts himself in a position where in the offseason, another team looks at him as a potential starter at the quarterback position if he plays well in this little audition. Yeah, let's hope it goes well for him. I'm certainly pulling for him. I want to see a Canadian do well. It'd be great to see him have a level of success. I know Lions fans don't want that to ultimately result in a win for the Calgary Stampeders, but it's that James Paxton sort of cheering that I talked to you about when he was pitching for the Yankees. Yeah, you don't have to hope for the Yankees to win, but you just want Paxton to have a really good start and then have the Yankees blow the game a little bit later. Have the bullpen yeah. come in and, and have it screw up, which is costing the Jays. Starting pitching was bad yesterday as well. Alec Manoa had his roughest start. He's been so good for them in his rookie campaign, but he had a bad start yesterday. But then they got it back to 8-6 in the bullpen at the wrong time at Crater. It was tough, too, especially seeing Riley Adams, the guy they gave up to Washington for some bullpen help, have a big day at the plate against them. That was uh, a, a bad exclamation point on an ugly night for the Jays. Yeah, it most certainly was. We'll talk more football NFL style in just a few minutes, hearkening back to the Michael O'Connor conversation. We'll head down to Seattle. Mike Dugar of The Athletic is going to join us to talk about the Seattle Seahawks. Back to the jersey ads. The report came out yesterday. All right, they're going to allow this for the 2023, 22-23 season. Pardon me. And there was a lot of reaction about this. The report came from Sportico. One of those who reported it was Eben Novi Williams, who was on the afternoon show yesterday, The People Show, with Dan Riccio and Randeep Janda. He talked about this being the right time, the right place, and why the NHL has decided to go in on this right now. From what I've been told, it's, it's billions, uh, and that's a plural with billions, which yeah. is a, a lot of money for a league that was, you know, had revenue around $5 billion before the, the pandemic. Um, I think the, the, the major question for many owners, and this is true in the NBA and to the NFL to an extent as well, what are we looking at this fall for this season? If we can have a, a relatively normal uh, attendance-wise 2021-2022 uh, season, I think things are manageable. If we end up in a situation with Delta or just because of kind of stagnation of vaccines, if we end up in a place where, where, where there are still restrictions in places for this upcoming season, then I think you start to feel the heat a lot more. And then I think you maybe get into the territory where owners might be selling or maybe selling kind of large minority stakes just to kind of get some capital on board. But from what I understand, it was multiple billions. You saw the salary cap go down. I think that's an important part of this as well. Uh, some of this money will, will work its way over to the players. Um, so if I'm an NHL player, I kind of like the idea, I think, of uh, anything owners are doing to raise league-wide revenue uh, because this will filter its way down to the players as well, especially in the salary cap. So, yeah, I think there's. It, it remains to be seen how big a deal this was for the NHL. But but if you look at the major U.S. leagues, the NHL is is on the spectrum of 
relying more on in-person gate attendance, parking, concessions, merchandise than they are on media deals. Um, that may change a little bit with the, with this new U.S. deal they just signed. But NHL teams are extremely reliant on on the gate, the, the, the in-game uh, revenue that they bring in. And COVID-19 pretty much made that disappear for an entire season. Yeah, it certainly did. And while this has been something that's been rumored for a very long time, Jamie, as to whether or not they'd ever allow advertising on sweaters, so it's kind of a natural progression, we do find ourselves at a place in business in general, sports aside, and obviously it's a part of it, but we find ourselves at a place in business in general where people are having to rethink how they do things, how they generate revenue, and what the future looks like in in terms of consumerism. And it's a good point there in the clip that the NHL is even more vulnerable to these sorts of disruptions from COVID than, you know, certainly the NFL, but even the NBA and Major League Baseball, which make a bigger chunk of their revenues from TV deals, which, you know, that's that's locked in, right, that you are getting that money from your television partners. The NHL, they rely more on the gate, right, as we heard. So they have more cause to be a little bit nervous about this upcoming season. Certainly their fingers are crossed that it will be really, really close to normal from an attendance perspective, but you can understand why that gives them a little extra bit of push to explore different ways of increasing revenue because they can't rely fully on getting that same gate revenue they're used to. Well, as we talked about in the opening of the show, you better be asking about relocation of franchises if you're a player right now. While the NHL might not go down that road, you should at least be asking about it. Okay, Just like with ads on helmets, that was something to cut losses. If you're losing money in certain markets, you should be asking about that. But you should also be asking about what the next revenue streams look like. And the obvious one right in front of our face is gambling, single event gambling. What does that look like for the NHL? How quickly will that be incorporated? Are teams going to cut their own deals, league-wide deals? What does it look like in arena? What are the specific attractive elements of gambling in sports that you can offer in venue that maybe you can't get elsewhere? That's the next one to come, and I'm interested to know what that looks like for the National Hockey League. Well, it's going to be huge, or at least the NHL hopes it is going to be huge. And a lot of other sports leagues hope it's going to be huge. But you're right. There's a lot of uncertainty there about what exactly that model will look like. You know, with the ads on jerseys, it's kind of easy, right? We've seen it done in the NBA. We've seen it done in other leagues around the world. It gives you a baseline to go on with the gambling aspect you're right there's all these questions is it team by team is it league wide if it's team by team what's the best way to implement it for for each different team and it's not going to be necessarily an overnight success for the nhl and for other leagues but it's something they're going to invest a lot of energy and a lot of time in trying to get right because of the potential rewards down the road Well, we talked about this a little bit with Peter Lubardius yesterday. The way that people consume now is different. They consume in snippets, and their attention goes elsewhere anytime there's a pause. And gambling is another one of those. If you you have time to get a prop bet in that can be quickly returned, either yes or no, you won, you lost, you're going to do that in-game. The second... It goes to a broadcast timeout and you're at a game. What are people doing? They're on their phones. A lot of times they're not paying attention to in-arena entertainment unless it's something really captivating. The, The current consumer wants more than ever before. Yeah, they want more ways to engage, I think, as you're saying, and more ways to keep them entertained. And we've seen, you know, fantasy and gambling are very successful at at accomplishing those goals, right? At keeping people, at keeping their eyes on your product. This one comes in. I'm sure this new revenue stream from Jersey ads will be reflected in lower family-friendly ticket prices for fans. Hashtag sarcasm. 
sarcasm. I just it never goes that way. It never does, no. and um, I I feel it. I understand that from the fans, and that is something you would hope happens. It just never goes that way in sports. No, and and really, that's just it comes down to simple supply and demand, right? That's how teams set their sick ticket prices. If people are willing to pay whatever the price is. There's no incentive whatsoever for them to lower prices, even if they get this new stream of revenue. Seahawks came up with the right incentive for Jamal Adams to sign, but was that the player they needed to get signed the most? And where are they at with Dwayne Brown? What does this offense look like under Shane Waldron? Many questions to be asked. Mike Dugar with the answers next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd with you here on this Wednesday morning, one that will see the BC Lions announce a new ownership group. Is it simply Amar Doman? Is that it? Not that that would be a bad thing. Is it sole ownership? It is a group we will find out in the next hour or so, and we'll get you that news as soon as we have it. Jamie, the National Football League preseason continues to churn on. Big news yesterday in Seattle was the signing of Jamal Adams, which seemed to be a foregone conclusion more than anything else. Well, and really when you go back, not just in recent weeks, what the rumors and reporting have been, but I mean, the fact that they gave up what they did to acquire him, right? You you do that because you see a long-term future for the player with your team. So it's no surprise that this got done, a deal that both sides, I think, can be happy with. Jamal Adams gets to say he's the highest paid safety in the game. And the thing I like about it from a Seahawks perspective is, you know, this didn't drag on to the eve of the regular season, right? He still has time to get his reps in in practice and hit the ground running in week one. And yet Dwayne Brown remains unsigned. He would appear to be a pretty big cog in the operation down in Seattle. He's the starting left tackle. He is their best offensive lineman. He protects Russell Wilson's blind side. They better find a way to get pen on paper there. Oh, yeah. And that's something I'm looking forward to talking to uh, Mike Dugar about, right, is where things stand there. Is it just a matter of time? Did they just want to get the Jamal Adams deal done first? But, yeah, if, if this new exciting version of the offense that we're all expecting and everyone's hoping for down in Seattle is going to pan out, you better have your starting left tackle available. Well, and this is something else I want to talk to Mike about. What the offense looks like under Shane Waldron. He comes over from the Rams. He's going to be the play caller now in Seattle. And yet with a lot of the principles out in the game last week, can we read anything into what happened? He started the game with 12 consecutive pass plays. Is that an indication of what he wants to do? Is it just that, well, we don't have our regular running game in there and maybe we're trying out some different linemen and formations here. So that's not really what we're going to do. We're just trying to get certain guys the ball. It's really difficult with a new offensive coordinator and parts that he's not going to be using for the most part in the first week of preseason to read too much into what the plan is. And yeah, I would, I would really caution against reading too much from the game plan in, you know, week one of the preseason, especially as you say, with not a lot of offensive starters out there, right? It's, there's so many different things that can go into why they decided to throw the ball that much. I, I still would expect to see Chris Carson get a steady diet of handoffs in this offense. Maybe not what he's used to, maybe not the overall volume that the Seahawks are used to, but I, I wouldn't read into this, oh man, they're going to throw the ball you know, almost all the time now in Seattle. What's your biggest question about this team, assuming Dwayne Brown gets signed and he's a part of this roster, what's your biggest question about this team this year? I think just in general, the overall level of performance we can expect from the defense, and and I'm excited to talk to Mike about this, but I look at the offense and feel pretty good about it. The defense, maybe a few more questions on that side of the ball. Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic. He covers the Seattle Seahawks and rejoins the station for the first time in a while. Mike, thanks for for doing this today. How are you? 
Uh, I'm doing good. How about you guys? We're doing well, thank you very much, from just up the I-5. They get Jamal Adams done yesterday. Dwayne Brown still in the lurch, doesn't have pen to paper. What is the holdup? Um, I mean, I don't know how much Dwayne was in their long-term plans. Uh, you know, I mean, he's turning 36, like, in a week or two. Um, you know, he can probably still play at age 37 and age 38, but the question is how well. Um, and I think Seattle has to also figure, like, when you so when you do an extension, right, like, you're effectively bidding against yourself, um, which, like, is terrible in negotiating, right? You That's why free agency is where a lot of agents want their players to get to because you can really know what your market is, and you have teams fighting for each other, blah, blah, blah. I think that worked in, like, Shaquille Griffin's interest uh, last year. If he'd have got a deal done um, this time last year, I doubt he would have got the, what was it, like 40 mil or something like that. You know, it was when Jacksonville, Seattle, and Cleveland were bidding for him um, that he ended up getting a really, really big bag. Um, I think Dwayne would be similar. Like, if let's say they gave Dwayne top 10 left tackle money, that's probably like 15-5 per year. I mean, how many other teams are giving him 15-5, you know, going into years 37 and 38? Seattle just doesn't know. Um, so, I mean, that would be part of part of my guess. Um, seeing how Stone Forsyth looks, their rookie six-round pick out of Florida, uh, probably matters a lot. Uh, if that matters, uh, then, well, Dwayne's price just went up because Stone didn't look great uh, in, that, in that debut. Um, and at the end of the day, Dwayne doesn't have a lot of leverage. You know, he's not going to miss games. He's not going to, you know, I asked him all that yesterday. Like, were you ready to miss games? He was like, hell no. Um, I'm sure if I asked Dwayne right now, I'm like, no, man. He's here to win a championship, to play with those guys in the locker room, to play with Russell. That's why he's here. Would he like a new deal? Sure. But, like, because he has – because I know that, Seattle probably knows that too, and they have no incentive to extend him right now. Understandable, but part of the negotiation process is, hey, how important are you on the open market? How how much you're worth in the open market, and how much you're worth to this team? Given what the identity is, this team is likely to be. How much is he worth to the Seahawks? Perhaps more than other teams out there. Uh, I mean, I still think he's worth a lot to other teams. To be clear, I'm not saying that he like the Seattle's the only team that could use a really good left tackle, right? Like, I mean. The preseason right now shows you that tackle depth is really, really, really hard to find. It's hard to find six four to six seven, three anywhere from three oh five to like three twenty five uh, pound, you know, human beings. Just in general, forget that them being athletic. Just that body type, America just doesn't produce a ton of, right? So then you have to find ones who are like that and athletic. Okay, now find two of them. Right. And OK, now we have 32 teams like that's just hard. You know, the math on it is just, is just difficult. So he has he has value. And specifically to Seattle, I mean, Russell wants Dwayne. Right. Like that matters. You know what I mean? Like the Russell has played without a left tackle before. It sucked. He didn't like it. Um, so, I mean, Russ's like love of Dwayne matters. And this this franchise's history with drafting offensive linemen um, should matter because like your gauge of whether you should pay dude. X amount of money should you should also factor in how likely is it that we replace him, um, and I mean look at what happened after they let Russell Okun go right it was it was a disaster until they got Dwayne so I'm sure like all of that is factoring factoring in when like assessing Dwayne's quote unquote value right now. Well, yeah, and left tackle, you know, the most important position on the offensive line, but the rest of the offensive line matters a lot as well. Beyond Dwayne Brown, how does the rest of the unit shape up for Seattle this year? Um, I, I think it's fair to be a little worried about center right now. I mean, Ethan Posick's hurt again. Um, 
you got to remember he was hurt a lot um, his first three years. And then finally he was like, okay, um, in year four, which is his first time as a, a full-time starter. Um, yeah, he's hurt. I don't really – I'm not the expert on center play to know whether Kyle Fuller is like an adequate backup. I just think that – I mean, you mentioned how left tackle is like the most important one. Quietly, offensive line is kind of becoming one of – it probably has always been this. I'm just not realizing it. It's one of those where, like, you're only as strong as your weakest link type of thing because offensive, defensive linemen are so athletic, they're so versatile, the defensive coordinators are so good that they run all these these twists and stunts and games that, like, okay, let's say you got two stud tackles. Well, all right, now we're just going to find really good three techniques who can rush. So if your center is a scrub, we're coming right at you. We're throwing games at him. We're throwing stunts at him. Um, so now, like, we can get that pressure from the interior, even if we don't necessarily – um, draft some big dude like, you know, Vita Vea side or something like that to just take him on all the time. So, like, I, I think that's kind of where Seattle is, where they have some really good spots. You know, I trust Brandon Cho. I trust um, Damian Lewis. Um, even though he was, like, an okay pass blocker last year, I trust Gabe Jackson. trust uh, Dwayne Brown. But, like, how much can you trust the center? Um, and, like I said, you get deep into the playoffs, you're only as strong as your weakest link um, sometimes, whether that's your defensive 11 guys starting or your, your, your five offensive linemen. So that's the one spot like I'm kind of worried about, even if like all of their guys are, are healthy. Well, I totally agree with you. It's a great point about, you know, you're weak. The you're only as strong as your weakest link on the offensive line. I think the other thing that plays a big factor with how your offensive line performs is, you know, continuity and, and having guys that have played together before and having guys that have developed that chemistry on the offensive line. And I mean, that's another mark in Dwayne Brown's favor, right? That you're bringing back someone who has a ton of experience playing as part of that unit. Yeah, I, I think continuity, it does matter. I mean, having, having come into the league, covering Tom Cable as like my introduction to offensive line coaches. Like I do think continuity is a little overblown. It's more, it's like two concepts that I think are really overblown. Uh, there's actually a few that I think are, but I'll stick with two. Um, it's continuity. Like if you guys stink, right? Like you guys could be best friends, know each other, know how each other thinks and moves. <laughs> if you can't block, it doesn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, give me five guys who can block. That's just really what it is. Dwayne showed up. Dwayne played the Seahawks got traded to the Seahawks like 48 hours later and was like immediately the best lineman on the team and the offensive line got better. And he didn't probably know all these dudes' names, you know, that first week. Uh, I think they played – I forget who they played his his first game, maybe Washington. Uh, but, like, so it it does matter, but it's not like this – Tom Cable would say it every offseason. It's like, yeah, continuity, continuity, continuity. It's like, Tom, you guys can't block. It doesn't matter if they go to each other's kids' bar mitzvahs and they love each other and then they, they hang out after – it doesn't matter right? Like how long they play together if they can't play well. The second concept I think is like the iron sharpens iron thing. Like Seattle's offensive line was going up against really good defensive lines for years and their iron never got sharp. Like, I mean, if, if your iron is supposed to get sharp by going against like Cliff Averill, Michael Bennett, I don't know what the hell is going on with Seattle's offensive line from like 2015 to 2018. So, I mean, the, so yes, continuity matters. But I think it is kind of overstated a lot of time. Like talent matters at the end of the day. I love the concept there of iron, not sharpening iron for the Seahawks for a long time either. That's a great point. I, I agree with that as well. I, I do want to ask you quickly, Mike, about Jamal Adams. Of course, he gets the big deal yesterday. What makes him so important to the Seahawks defense that they felt comfortable giving him the deal and making him the highest paid safety in the league? Uh, I mean, a lot of things. He's one of the few guys in the NFL who can like impact 
the the game at all three levels. Like he can stop the run, he can get the quarterback, he can cover. Um, even if he's not like Richard Sherman in cover, it's like you can stick him back there. You know, like take your favorite linebacker, your favorite defensive end. You can't stick them back there, right? Like you, you, you just can't. You know, I mean, even Bobby Wagner and Fred Warner, who are really good coverage linebackers, like they still have their their limitations on the guys they can cover. Like I've seen Jamal Adams break up passes to targeted to Julio Jones. You know, like I mean, he can he can do a, a little bit of everything. Um, like in that Atlanta game alone last year, he had like a t- TFL on Gurley on a pass play, uh, a pass breakup against like I think Hayden Hurst, whoever their tight end was, on like a two point conversion. And a pass breakup, like against Julio, like that's look at that's running back, tight end, receiver. How many people can do that? You know, like I don't care even if he's not the greatest dude in coverage. There's there's some dude you just literally legitimately can't stick back there, and then those dudes aren't half the the pass rusher uh, that Jamal is. The other thing is, I mean, Seattle doesn't want to admit this publicly, but they're not good at drafting defensive backs anymore. <laughs> I mean, just kind of look, so look at their starting base defense. Right, this is this is their projected defensive back lineup. A guy drafted by San Francisco, a guy drafted by San Francisco, a guy drafted by the Jets, and a guy drafted by the Lions. You know, like, and then you factor in if they start Marquis Blair Ugo, they would have drafted one of those guys. But in their base defense, their secondary is four dudes they didn't draft. Right? So ultimately, you've got to pay Jamal's. You've got to pay Quandre's, uh, Quandre Diggs, that is, if you're not going to draft those guys. Like, where's Tedrick Thompson? Where's Mike Tyson? Where's Shaquille Griffin? Um, forget who else they draft. Uh, Trey Flowers is still on the team, but he's a backup. So, like, that's part of also why they had to do this deal because they didn't have other good options because their drafting has fallen off um, since, like, the Legion of Boom years. Mike Dugar of The Athletic in Seattle join us to talk Seahawks this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. What do you expect to be the biggest question mark about this defense? Is it still the pass rush? Is it that secondary? Where would you point? Uh, I don't think pass rush will be the problem um, at all. I mean, they they legit had, like, one of the best pass rushes in the league once they got Jamal and Carlos Dunlap, and they still have Jamal and Carlos Dunlap. Uh, losing Jay Reed is the big deal. Uh, I think he lost, I think he led them in pressures um, and was, like, second uh, in sacks. Maybe he had a really good year, um, but we have enough data to indicate that Jay Reed was basically only good when he was playing next to a really good um, defensive end. And, I mean, he would have been if he had stayed, but I don't think that's that big a loss if you just replace him with Puna Ford, um, add Al Woods to the mix, and then throw in guys like get someone like Kerry Hyder. Uh, I think that that can supplement um, that loss, especially with the position switch for Puna. So I think it'll be the cornerback group because, like I said, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So when you get deep into the playoffs, like it only takes one dude, you know, with like a bad defensive PI or gets beat on third down or gives up a big touchdown that, like, can be the difference. You can have 11 or 10 solid dudes. The Packers, look at the Packers last year, for example. They had pretty much 10 solid guys on defense, and then there was Kevin King, right? And then that was the difference, you know, like, getting burned at the end of the half, uh, the defensive pass interference that he uh, committed at the very end of the game. Like, your weakest link needs to be strong. Like, all 11 got to be solid. And so – um, I need to see DJ Reed and the killer Witherspoon, they're projected to starting outside guys, be really consistent and strong. Because if, if that's the thing about a killer, he hasn't been consistent. If, if like your 11th dude is DJ Reed or a killer Witherspoon, I think you have a really strong defense. You just got to see if those two can be really consistent on the outside in the league where like these receivers are big, strong, fast, and like freaky athletic. 
The annual question continues to be, and it will come back again because they've got a new offensive coordinator. Are they going to let Russ cook? Is that going down this year? What do you expect from this offense? Uh, I doubt it. I really do. I mean, so Pete, <laughs> Pete's fired three offensive coordinators, I think. The first dude's name was like something Bates, I want to say, from 2010, um, and hired Daryl Bevel. And I'm pretty sure, like, from 2010 to 2011, they were, like, very run-heavy in, like, Daryl's first year. Um, I'm pretty sure that's when they had Marshawn, so it made sense. And they had Tavares at quarterback. But even then, he fires Daryl in 2017, right, and then he hires Shoddy. They're, like, the most run-heavy team in the league in Shoddy's first year, right, after being pretty pass-happy in 2017. So, you fire Shoddy in 2020, and you really pass-happy. Like, I'm just using the data that I have available to, like, suggest, okay, you're probably going to regress in terms of your pass frequency just because that's what you've done. That's what Pete Carroll knows. Um, he's He has a history of building successful offenses around a stud running back and a play-action game. Whether I think that's the right way to go uh, is another thing. I don't, for what it's worth. But, I mean, if you ask me what do I think will happen, uh, based on what we have, we have 10, that's 10 years of data right there with Pete Carroll's tendencies as the head coach of the season. I'm making an educated guess that I think this team is going to run the ball a lot more. I think the Russ cooking days are, are, are kind of done. You can make a case for any team in this division. It's the toughest one in all of football. On paper, going into this year, assuming health for each of the four teams in the NFC West, where do you peg the Seahawks? I think the Rams and the Seahawks are like pretty – Jeremy Bates was the offensive coordinator's name in 2010. Sorry, that was bugging me. I hate when I don't uh, know stuff. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I'd say the Rams and Seahawks are like 1A, 1B. Um, I think the quarterback situations – being like settled matters a lot. Um, like the, the the Niners have a very talented roster. I think they have some really high end players: George Kittle, Bosa, Fred Warner, uh, Trent Williams. I mean, that's like four dudes right there who are probably like, if not the best, like top two or three at, at least uh, in their respective positions. I think that's really important. Um, they've got some back end questions uh, as well. They had a lot of defensive guys, uh, free agents last year. Um, but I, so I think until you know who you, who the hell your quarterback's going to be, like by the time you get to the playoffs, I don't think you can really expect to compete um, with with the rest of the division when the division is competent and has competent quarterback play. Um, so it's a coin flip between the Rams uh, and the Seahawks. It just depends on how much benefit of the doubt you want to give each side. With the Seahawks, it's like okay, do you give a new coordinator the benefit of the doubt, um, perhaps because of the element of surprise and all that? Or if you're, you give the Rams the benefit of the doubt, despite the fact that they're losing their defensive coordinator and some key defensive pieces in Troy Hill and John Johnson, um, and the Rams are really healthy last year defensively, um, according to a lot of the metrics that track like games lost uh, based on injuries. So do you anticipate like them regressing a, a little bit with the injury bug? So that, those two are the pretty clear. And then San Francisco, I got third. And I just don't trust what Cliff Kingsbury and and, and Kyler have done um, in their, what, two years together, it doesn't look very fun. And it's almost like a reminder. It's like, oh, this guy got fired at Texas Tech. Like, that's why. Like, you know, it's not like he was a genius. You know, he, he wasn't getting it done in the Big 12. You know, so it's not a surprise he's not getting it done in the NFC West. So that's kind of how I rank it right now. Hey, Mike, before we let you go, it seems like every year at training camp for pretty much every NFL team, there's a guy who comes in without a lot of hype surrounding him who ends up turning heads and potentially carving out a role for himself on the final roster. Who's that player for you this year at Seahawks training camp? 
Um, I think so far it's undrafted rookie free safety Ashari Crosswell um, out of Arizona State. I think he played just one game at ASU last year. He got suspended indefinitely. I believe it was reported as a fight, I want to say. Um, so, I mean, th- there's a lot of things that you can point to like, yo, okay, what's wrong here? Um, but, I mean, the kid's talented. Look at his, his tape from 2019. He was ball hawking. He's really good. I think he's probably got like three or four interceptions um, between rookie camp and training camp. Uh, he, he he can get to the rock. Um, and I also think that there's like a clear opening for someone to start or to back up Quandre Diggs. Like Marquise Blair and Ugo Amadi can do it. Um, but they're also entrenched in like a nickel battle between the two of them. So like there's there's just like an open spot, um, I think, at like backup free safety. And Ashari, I mean, I talked to him, I think like the first couple of days at camp. I, I was like, you know, what's it going to take to make the team? And he was like, I get my hands on the ball. And since then, he, I mean, he had two picks in one day. He picked off Russ and Gino in the same practice. I was like, good God, this kid's good. Uh, I mean, he's got some growing pains. He's an undrafted rookie. You know, like he's not you know Earl Thomas from day one. But, I mean, finding a way to be around the ball is hard you know, from that single high spot. And he's proven uh, capable of doing it. So, like, right now he's my leader in the clubhouse in terms of the, the annual undrafted guy who sneaks on to the 53. A lot of fans from our market like to make that cross-border trip when that's going to be possible and get down to Seahawks games with teams like the Raiders formalizing policies around masks and and vaccinations. Do we know what the Seahawks plan to do? Uh, I don't don't think we know for sure, but I would imagine that – I mean, I was just talking to – it's funny. I was talking to our our Raiders writer um, because I was out there in Vegas for the game, and I was like, I can't imagine teams not – requiring vaccination where the Delta variants going and the way they're allowing these guys to just pack the house um, in these NFL stadiums and the way people are behaving um, inside these stadiums. Like you can mask mandate all you want, but I mean, you see people screaming with their masks down, they in there fighting, they pouring beer on each other. Like it, you know, everybody's hugging and dapping each other up. You know, the players are like going and hugging their high school coach and dapping their high school coach up or their, their mom or their auntie after the games and stuff. So it's like, you just have to require vaccination, I would imagine. And it's funny, like a day later, they they announced it. And I think a lot of other teams are going to follow suit. I think the Saints are doing something similar. Uh, I, I saw. So, like, it, I think it's inevitable for every team to eventually, like, look, if you want to get in here and be crazy and scream, get the jab. You know, that's just what it, what it's going to take. And I think that's what it should take, man. Like, tired of these masks and stuff. Like, everybody should get the shot so we can all go back to some type of normal. Preaching to the choir right here to the two dudes you're talking to. I can tell you that. Mike, thank you very much for doing this. We will do it again before the season and likely a number of times during the season. Thank you for your time. All right. Thanks for having me. Peace. The two that he talked about, New Orleans, I didn't see if that's been made formal or not, Jamie. Vegas as well. Those are indoor venues, so those venues will be quicker, I would think, than outdoor venues to mandate a mask policy. But there are also state-by-state considerations that we have to get into here. Washington, in general, is a pretty liberal, progressive state. I would agree with Mike. That's probably the way it goes. But, hey, there's, there's teams in Texas. There are teams in states that don't look at this the exact same way, and that's why we've seen a rise in Delta variant in cases around the U.S. So, well, I, I agree logically with Mike that maybe every team goes that way, or or you would think. I also know what politics look like in a bunch of different states, yep. so I can see a bunch of them being reticent to get there. Well, and, you know, it might not even be up to the teams in those states. And believe it or not, right. you know, there are, there are state governments which could ban teams from 
having a vaccine mandate, right? Because that's how the politics plays out in those states. You know, we're seeing certain states say school boards aren't, school districts aren't allowed to have mask mandates. We're banning that, right? So that, you're you're exactly right. The geography of it and the politics of it are different everywhere. In Seattle, I agree with Mike that, yeah, it's probably going to go down that way. But you're right. For a team in Texas, a team in Florida, some other states, they might not even have the ability to make that choice if that's what they want to do. We'll do it closer to the season. We don't have to do it now. I'm fascinated again by the NFC West. I said it there. I think anybody out there who watches the NFL knows this. It's the best division top to bottom in football, and there's a great case to be made depending on which way you want to argue it for each and every team in the division. It's a really fascinating division, and depending on how – well, two things, really. One, what Matt Stafford looks like under Sean McVay, but then also how the quarterback situation plays out in San Francisco and what level either Jimmy G or Trey Lance is able to hit this year. But you could be looking at a team with four, you know, star-level quarterbacks for one for each team, right? Between Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, if Matt Stafford gets to that level, and then potentially Trey Lance. And that just underscores how deep and how talented all of these teams are. It's going to be really exciting. Every, I think every matchup between any of those four teams is going to be kind of a marquee game on the NFL schedule this year. We're hitting halftime here on the program today. In this next hour, the BC Lions will formalize their announcement of new ownership. One of the things we often ask for in sports, if not your own life, is accountability. How much do you need to see from your general manager? We'll explain next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.